Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moisel, and these are the women who rule. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to She Dynasty. I am very excited to welcome Mia Kirikos, the President and Chief Love Officer of Kirikos and Associates which is a strategic advisory and referral firm dedicated to the success of wellness, hospitality, tourism, and healthy lifestyle companies. This is especially exciting because it's a topic that we haven't spoke about before. And Mia has been named a global leading woman in wellness. She sits on the advisory boards of Cornell University, Wellness for Cancer, and the Global Wellness Institute. She's also a celebrated speaker, and has had her work featured in the New York Times, the LA Times, Travel Weekly, and more. Also, if you don't already, please like and subscribe and follow our podcast. We are on every major platform. You can also find us on Instagram at she underscore dynasty. Hi, Mia. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Valerie? I'm good. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm thrilled to be on She Dynasty. I've been hearing all these great things about it, and now I get to star on it. I'm excited. You come from the exciting field of wellness, which is obviously all the the rage right now. You hear so much about the wellness industry and how it's booming. So, you know, before we get started and we talk about your journey, tell us really quickly, what what is the wellness industry in, in a whole? Like, can you explain it to people who are listening who may have a different idea in their mind of what it means? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, when you think about wellness, it's the best way to think about wellness, I think, are the products, the services, the steps you take that really help you prevent disease, manage stress, and kind of live your best life. And that's kind of from a consumer standpoint, that's my layman terms for it. From an industry standpoint, it's kind of surprising. It's about a four and a half trillion dollar business. And a lot of people don't know that's like three times the size of the pharmaceutical industry. So I like to think that the business of keeping people well is is much bigger than curing the sick. So let's just focus on keeping people happy and well. Right. So give us some examples of industries that are in the wellness space that maybe we might not think of. All right. So you might have think of, you you would think of nutrition and fitness and mindfulness and all that jazz, but you might not think about complementary alternative medicine. So like acupuncture and chiropractic services, you might not think about um, wellness travel and tourism. Maybe you would like, you know, people that are lucky enough to go do yoga for a week in Mexico and eat chocolate, which is awesome. Um, But maybe um, you haven't heard of real estate. So like wellness lifestyle, real estate is now like all those reasons you might travel or take an hour or two hour break to go to a spa. What if you um, made real estate more well as well? So lots of fun little segments that you might not really think about Um, beauty, personal um, health and wellness, but all the beauty industry, that's part of it too. So lots of segments, there's like 11 or 12 um, that have been identified by the uh, global wellness Institute. If anyone cares. I love that. And can you explain kind of where you fall into the the wellness sphere, kind of your, you know, your kind of role in there? Sure, sure. So I've really spent the last 20 years um, wearing different hats in the industry. Um, I have my own consultancy now with this really focused on helping companies of all kinds make 
wellness a strategic differentiator, whether that's like a product or a service, or they want to make their colleagues or leaders well. But I've also led health and wellness for um, companies of all kinds. And, and one of my sweetest spots is is wellness-driven hospitality. So I've worked in hotel companies that have done that. But my job today is really to help people think about wellness differently at their companies, um, both within hospitality, outside of hospitality, any kind of business really that just wants to get real about keeping all their stakeholders well inside their companies and outside their companies. Well, that's interesting. So you're you're kind of moving into or you're you're working a lot in the space with companies where you're helping employers kind of make sure that they're employees are kind of in a good mindset and feeling happy and healthy and well. Yeah. And I think, you know, you have companies, some companies out there, they want a program to better support their employees that are now like spread out and remote learning and remote working and so forth. Um, But you have other companies that are also trying to, you know, better cater to consumers with health and wellness products, or even leave their communities off in a better place. So lots of different angles to play with. So is this, is this include mental health or is that separate? No, it definitely includes mental health. In fact, I would say there's mental health, um, that is there's mental wellness as well, right? A lot of times people think about, okay, it's this narrow part of the population. And I would say it's broader than people think where you're actually, dealing with people that have clinical conditions, but at any point in time, we could go through a divorce, lose a friend, you know, there's all of these different things, have a fight with our spouse before we go to work. There's all these things that affect our mental health and wellness. And I think um, that field is getting a lot bigger um, to not just focus on the clinical conditions, but the realities of everyday life. Right. And as a business owner myself, you know, with a lot of employees, and I'm sure you hear this, you know, it's obviously it's a challenge, especially with the new hybrid work, um, you know, scenarios where we're all on computers and we're not in person. There's probably a lot of mental wellness that is kind of taking place just because it's hard to, you know, create a culture and keep people motivated and excited to be at your company. Is that something that you also deal with? Yes. So um, that is something I also deal with because you know, I think it was quite e- it was a lot easier in traditional office environments where you could control the setting to some degree, right? How's the lighting? How's the air quality? Is there a gym available on site? If you offer food, is it healthful or whatever? Now it's like a complete mixed bag because you have people that are spread out at, at in homes, often not designed for work, and then you're the leader having to ensure their well being because you know, they earn your, their paycheck from you. Like it's a completely different dynamic. And so, yeah, we talk about how to help clients do that as well, but also not just, you know, sell products to consumers. We have to walk the talk too. How important is that in-person interaction in your mind? I think it's really important. I mean, I do think is the question really about how important is it to come together physically in person, or can you come together virtually? Right. And I think, virtual without a question you need to do. Um, But I do think a level of magic often can only happen when you are together in person, right? Um, And so I wonder often like with with like the metaverse and the things that are coming, like really what is in-person going to mean, right? Um, But I guess I'm an old fashioned Gen Xer where I do believe that there is some magic that happens when you're in a room with people. And you know that when you're chilling out, eating popcorn, watching a movie, the same is true when you're working with people. 
I agree. Do you do you think that uh, the pendulum will swing the other way where people are just going to start like craving to be at the office all the time? Or do you think that this is our new normal? Um, I think we're going to want a more happy medium. You know, I do think the pendulum's probably going to swing a little bit more to the middle. Um, I think people that are in remote, remote work environments, and that's sort of a permanent change, which some companies have done. Some of them are starting to ask, they want a place to go to work. So they want a shared office space, a WeWork or many of the other, you know, offerings that are out there. I think we're going to see more of that. And I think we're going to see more of true hybrid situations where people might stay at home two days a week, but be in the office three days a week or something. I think you are going to see more of a mix. It's really going to come down to the harder question of where will people do their best work? And honestly, for a leadership team, what will enable them to lead as as well as they can? And that's a different answer for everyone, right? So... I wonder if there's kind of differences in kind of opinions based on generations. Are you seeing that? Um, that's a really good, astute question, Valerie. Um, yes, I would say absolutely. You know, you've got, I think millennials and Z and Y sort of have built their lives around a, a full on integration in many cases of work and life. So they don't see, um, a separation between the two and prefer quite honestly that they're not they want a bit of work from anywhere and that could be like on a beach in mexico but i think i'm seeing more people in gen x and certainly boomers that for that are still working that they prefer to go to work and have that sort of healthy healthy in their minds the excuse i get a lot is there's an easier division of work and life, which they prefer. They don't prefer the integration. They're, right. they're happy to juggle balance um, and they like to have separate places. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, it seems, I mean, not there's always exceptions to the rule, but it seems like at my company, a lot of the, the Gen X, the Gen Xers are definitely the ones more eager to come to the office every day. I think it's, it's I just think when you grow up that way and it's kind of instilled in you, but at the same time, you know, I guess up until a couple of years ago, um, you know, our millennial and Gen Gen Z, Gen Y um, friends were also um, doing the same thing. But the difference is that they were, you know, kind of raised uh, partially with, you know, the virtual technology. And so we didn't have that as part of our foundation. So it's super interesting what a difference that makes and how generation shifts happen, right? Well, and I call Gen X the tweeners, like we are the tweener generation because we remember what it was like as kids growing up that we would disappear after school and our parents just trusted we'd come home for dinner. God knows what we were doing at that time and you couldn't get a hold of us, right? But then we we were in college when the internet was born and you know, email. So we we know life pre and post and we can talk about the pros and cons pre and post. Um, and I think we're sort of in some ways better equipped for a hybrid situation than most because the other generations are either or typically, you know, I'm being uh, massively stereotypical, but that's the truth. Right. Don't you feel so blessed that we got to experience a life without tech? I mean, I first of all, I came in imagine me as a teenager with the tracking devices that I found out just because I was not a good kid when it came to no. that stuff. And, and thank God we didn't have social media when I was in high school. There was, you know, <laughs> so yeah. I'm so glad. I mean, I do feel like the total table stakes have changed and it's a harder world to like live in now. And I, I wouldn't want to be part of any other generation than the one I'm in with right. respect to all others that I also love. 
<laughs> I remember the the topics of conversation when we were um, younger and teenagers about um, how looking at like Vogue magazine was going to destroy us, right? Or or Harper's Bazaar. That yeah, that was yeah. Linda Evangelista, and oh yeah. Oh yeah, that was like really going to mess with our minds. So can you even imagine like it's just on steroids right now, what kids have to deal with. And my heart goes out to us Gen X parents out there that are trying to parent, right? And then also lead. I mean, God, Valerie, I can't imagine what it's like to be you. You've got, you're wooing the world with your company and you're trying to like grow good humans. It's it's quite the stretch. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, let's jump into a little bit of your journey just so people can kind of learn how you got sparked to be in this career in the first place. So tell us a little bit about uh, your background, your, where you're born, your childhood, what'd you want to be when you grew up? Okay. Um, I was born on the happy coast of Maine, about an hour north of Boston in a resort town. So I grew up doing, I couldn't wait to work. I mean, I was like 12 or 13 trying to deliver the paper or scoop ice cream or do something. I loved making money because then I didn't have to ask my parents for money where I would have to clean their cars or do chores. But uh, I grew up in, in a resort town. So I worked in hotels, restaurants, private clubs for like as long as I could work. And then um, I went to undergrad college at Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts. I majored in international relations and I got a real bug for studying other cultures and traveling and seeing the world. And, you know, I grew up in a big fat Greek family. I should point this out. I grew up in a big fat Greek family and my mother was a Greek immigrant and I'm in Waspy, Maine, right? So we're weird. I mean, we are literally the movie. If you've seen it, we're roasting a lamb on a spit at Easter. People are like trying to search for Easter eggs and everyone's like, what the hell, Mia? Um, but my point is I, I had a real thirst for like learning about other cultures and stuff. So I, um, lived in Brussels for a year when I was in college and got really immersed into what it was like to have a passport and that it was so easy to travel. And I just really got a desire to work globally. And I, even though I didn't know what that meant, I graduated, I had romantic ideas, Valerie, of like learning Arabic and solving the Middle East crisis when I was young and dumb. <laughs> believing I could do that. Um, and I think if anyone's listening, follow your dreams and you could do it. But I got gun shy and I had school loans to pay that, you know, working for a nonprofit that would maybe help me solve the crisis wasn't going to get me to pay my bills. Right. So I ended up joining a dot com. Um, when no one knew what that was in the late nineties that sold business intelligence software. And I like to say I was in an industry I didn't like at all doing work that I loved because I was in marketing communications. Um, I learned what it was like to have the pressures of a board and take a company public. And so that was great. And, um, ended up having one of my favorite bosses at a company I did not like working with and, he was awesome. He used to work. He was the chief marketing officer at Coca-Cola previously. And he gave me awesome advice and said, Mia, like, if you're dreaming about a world of like living globally and working cross-culturally and you want to get to hospitality, take this marketing experience you just got for four years and you had more responsibility than you should in your early twenties and bridge back, get back to the industry. Right. So Love that. Uh, yeah, it sounds like you were very driven when you were younger. And I know you and I spoke about this on when we spoke the first time, um, you know, because I also have immigrant parents. Were they supportive of how ambitious you were? Was that something 
that they, you know, really fostered and nurtured? You know, it's a really interesting question. I had sort of two sides of the equation with my mom and dad, right? My mom always wanted us to be fierce, independent women, but she also wanted like part of being a fierce, independent woman was also like getting married and having babies and finding a way to do that. My dad went to like military college. He didn't have sons. He thought he would. He had three girls. What the hell? That was like strange for him. Um, and he just felt like we were going to grow up in a man's world. And so it should never be about gender. It should be about working hard, improving yourself. So it was sort of the best of both worlds because I had sort of the domestic diva goddess on one side, which, which was my mom. And I think I had the best mom for demonstrating what it meant to be like a faithful partner to my dad and, you know, make sure we maintain traditions and cultures that was really hard to do as a big fat Greek family in a waspy Protestant community. Right. And then my dad, he was like, you're going to learn how to change a tire and you're going to come out and come hunting with me. And you're going to know how a gun works. And you're, I mean, literally like he just had all these skills in his mind, what was life skills. And when we went to college, I mean, this was a major thing. My twin sister and I were very interested in, for whatever reason, these all-female schools in the Northeast that were really strong academically. And my father was like, absolutely not. You guys need to go to a school where it's it's equal parts men and women, if not more men, because that's the real world if you want to work out there. And I mean, he was very, Love so I that. think that's really the... I got the best of both worlds. You put that in a melting pot and they're sort of the gumption I had. And I think if your immigrant family is any, um, if you can relate to this, but they were always working hard to prove themselves. I think that immigrant mentality of, of working hard to make it in the new world kind of thing was absolutely part of who we were too, so. Yeah, I think my my family was next level. I remember my grandmother, this is even embarrassing to say, but I remember my grandmother, she's now passed away, but anytime she heard somebody was pregnant, her first question in French, um, my, my family's from North Africa, Tunisia. So, um, but they were, it was a French colony, so they spoke French, but she would ask immediately, is it a girl or a boy? And if it was a girl, it was bad news. And if it was a boy, it was good news. And literally she would say that. Um, so, um, you know, so that was, I just remember like, um, you know, just growing up, you know, it was always just this push for me to get married, get married. You don't have to go to school. You don't have to do any of that. I mean, it sounds like yours, your situation wasn't quite as bad as mine, but, um, you know, there's definitely some similarities from, you know, other cultures that kind of carry through, but it sounds like your parents adapted much better. Yeah, they, they did. All of the grandparents with the mentality that, that you grew up with were absolutely present. So they were always questioning our dating choices and when we were going to get serious about life because anything outside of getting married and having babies was just, you know, not a good raison d'etre, right? So, right, right. so let's talk about one of um, your initial sparks that led you to wellness, which was the reality of 9-11. Um, what kind of shift both, you know, personal and professional did this cause? So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it was probably probably the earliest spark I can think of. Um, I had borrowed all this money, like $100,000 to go pay for like an Ivy League MBA 
that I probably didn't have any business going to get. And I was on the campuses of Cornell in an airline panel. And, you know, we got word that the plane went through the building. I'm just never forget it. I always get goosebumps when I have this moment. And I had classmates that lost family members in the towers. I mean, it was just really, and there's only like 60 of us. And it was like international and really amazing experience. And once we got through the human side of it, I realized I just went and invested all this money in getting an MBA at the hospitality school at Cornell that the industry was going to be dead. And I'd just come out of dot-com where people like had leveraged their houses and homes and lost tons of money in the market. And I'm literally like, the world has gone mad. What am I doing? Um, And it was a real moment. The spark was I need to better align my professional and personal aspirations. And that's when wellness for me was born. Um, There was one class that was actually um, the histories of spa and wellness that was taught. And I went at Cornell Mm -hmm. and it was focused more on, um, on really about the properties and, and such. And I went to meet the the graduate, the, the teacher, the professor, and she was looking for a graduate assistant. And I kind of stood out because I had spent four years outside of the hospitality industry and .com. And I also had this functional expertise in marketing communications. And she was excited by that. And so she took me under her wing and she helped me to network and it changed my life. And, you know, it totally changed the trajectory of what I was doing for the following couple of years. So you said the class was called the history of spa and wellness? Yes. Mm-hmm. So how, how far back did spas exist? That was the spas were back with, I mean, the, the term spa is actually Latin for taking to the water. So she mapped back all the way down to ancient Greek and Roman times, but then brought it through to major breakthroughs and destination brands that we've maybe heard of today, like Canyon Ranch and Miraval and others that um, came to market. And it was wild. And so we looked at all different segments of the industry. I learned about trade associations, the support of the industry, I mean, stuff I didn't know existed. So um, really quite the pivotal time for me. Love that. And so eventually your path led you to, you know, this key goal to really, you know, legitimize the business of, you know, wellness. So elaborate on that a bit. Yeah. So um, I was lucky after I left Cornell, I worked in the space for a while. I I was a spa director of a place in New York City and helped open up a second uh, unit for this awesome brand, Exhale Mind Body Spas. There's like 23 of them now. And just because of good networking and pounding the payment and volunteering and all that, I got um, hired by Starwood Hotels and Resorts to lead spawn wellness development at hotels. But what I was realizing is there was like no data out there about like spas. No one knew like how much money they were making. Most hotels built them not to make money, but like as amenities, but then they realized, God, they're really expensive to operate. And there was no data. And so that's when I started collaborating with the few people in the industry that I knew. And I just said, we need to like build organizations that will help get us data so we can make business cases because I was laughed in the early years out of more boardrooms and senior management meetings than I was invited into. And so that's when, you know, a little falling on your face a little bit because you couldn't make a business case like anyone else could. Um, led me to help build organizations like the Global Wellness Summit and the Global Wellness Institute and others just because selfishly at the time I needed data to make business cases. And fortunately, now there's great research and it's like it's quoted all over the world and the industry is. Um, But my my quest, I really decided was, listen, this is an industry that actually helps people not just feel better about themselves, 
but also enables them to prevent illness, like add years to their lives, like better care for themselves and people that they love. And by the way, it makes money. It makes a lot of money. So we should be able to do more to help legitimize that champion it, get out there. It's not just touchy feely, like female fluff and buff, getting your nails done. Like there's real evidence behind getting a massage and um, meditating and all these things. And so that's really why I say I really want to legitimize the business of wellness. And I have to say, I think we're doing a good job. <laughs> I agree. I agree. All right. Well, we're going to talk about one of your snags. So after building spa brands, you decided to take a leap of faith and focus on workplace wellness, which was an, an unknown space at the time. So tell us some more about what that experience taught you. Sure. Um, I was lucky enough to, after Starwood, I got recruited out to this company called Athletes Performance. Um, and now it's called Exos, but really the company was all about training the world's best athletes all of our favorite NBA, PGA, NFL players, whatever. And they asked me to help them repackage it and bring it on the campuses of Fortune 500 companies because they want to go to consumers, but they didn't want to build health clubs. So here I am on the campuses of like Google and Intel and State Street Bank and all these places with like a bunch of performance trainers and nutritionists trying to help people that work behind their desks and feel chained to it to get healthy and get well. But I learned pretty painfully that it wasn't because they cared about the colleagues' life and, you know, um, quality of life. But I learned that they want to just reduce their healthcare costs because it's expensive to take care of unhealthy workforces, you know. So um, that's probably like the a big snag, I think, that I learned at the time that was really about wow, you know, people aren't yet in it for this, they're in it for, for the business. The other thing that you mentioned, which is something that I'm sure so many people listening are, are gonna relate to is um, that you were working in hospitality during the, when the global pandemic started. And oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, that's fast. Yeah, yep. talk, talk about an industry that sure. really got hit, but I think now everyone's making up for it because, you know, I think it's, um, there's uh, some lost time people want to make up for in terms of not taking care of themselves, but you know, I'll never forget, you know, I, you know, I go and get a manicure every two weeks and all of a sudden my manicure is closed down and just thinking, gosh, this is these people's livelihoods. Like, what are they going to do? You know, yeah. it's just so awful to just see, you know, some of, some of these like mom and pop shops that, you know, had built their you know, entire worlds around this just kind of collapse. And I'm sure for you, it was on a different level, but tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, the snag was a big one. I was living my dream of a dream job. I was the SVP and global head of well-being for a major hotel brand. And I was loving it. Loved my team, got a budget approved, headcount approved, we were literally impacting the health and well-being of consumers and 130,000 colleagues worldwide. And then the world stopped. And, you know, you're part of a leadership team. And we had to realize pretty quickly that we had to lay off 1,500 people across corporate and regional resources. And I ended up having to eliminate my entire team and then turn around and negotiate my own exit with the CEO, a company that I loved in a city that I loved in Chicago. Um with a team that I love doing work that I loved. Right. So, wow. What a, what a, I felt like I got hit by a two by four. Right. I mean, it was killer, but that snag ended up being like this gift that was unexpected and I didn't plan for it. And I never thought I ever wanted, but um, it brought me back 
to my hometown in York, Maine, where my parents are, my 96-year-old grandmother, my twin sister, my other sister, Catherine. I mean, everyone, we, we, my husband and I be, be, were suddenly part of a community again and part of a family again that we weren't able to be in that way in our adult lives. And we didn't have kids, dogs, or fish. And so we were able to go to the grocery store for people and go to the drugstore and and help them get through a, a, a time that was very scary for everybody, right? And then we reinvented ourselves. You know, I just was able to pick up where I consulted before, which is where I was hired out from. My husband got to work remote and suddenly we're having richer, fuller lives because we're with people that we love and we care about. Like, yeah. I mean, it, sometimes it happens. Yeah, and you know, I think this is a, like a really good kind of stopping reflection moment for, you know, our younger folks who are listening, just because so much of what happens in our careers is not always great. And we always, everyone hits snags. And I will tell you with 100% certainty, almost every woman who I have interviewed on She Dynasty, the snags is what elevates you or propels you to the next level of greatness. And so those hard times are, you know, what get you from here to there. And so, in the moment when it's happening, it sucks and it feels hard, but I think that it's there for a purpose to make you stronger and better and uh, and move you forward. I could not agree more. And also it makes you reprioritize in a way. And when I think about how I advise like, you know, multi-million dollar companies around the globe, I used to have a fear uh, like of saying the wrong thing or advising them the wrong way or not saying the hard things out loud. And I do not care anymore. It's like, I, I, that's what I get paid for. And I'm brutally honest um, sometimes because life's literally too short um, to do otherwise now. And honestly, I think it's that snag, you know, only ended up making things better all around. For sure. And you talk about feeding, how important it was for you to feed your curiosity. What did mm-hmm. you mean by that? Um, my, everyone wonders, what's your wellness tip? Do you, you know, work out? Do you meditate? Whatever. I actually keep a list of things I want to learn when I have the time to do it. And that's my little trick. And I, I need something that is going to be a beacon of hope when I'm like at the bottom of a black hole. And I had this theory kind of like that wellness, part of like legitimizing the business of wellness and that it would make money. That was a theory like 15, 20 years ago. Well, now my theory was what if companies, bear with me on this, institutionalized love as a business practice, could that actually impact their company performance? And love is really just a supreme form of positivity. And so what did I do? I started researching. I had time. I started researching, just be like, what's this thing? What's positivity management and and looking like, and I started finding companies like Prudential, like Southwest Airlines, like a bunch of others that actually have to some degree institutionalized love as a business practice. And so I, um, the theory paid off. I ended up changing when I relaunched my consultancy, I changed my title from president and CEO to president and chief love officer. I love that so much. CEO again, because I think our job, Valerie, as, as CLOs is to love people again in a way that we needed to be reminded of. And, 
it changed my life and it changed my work. And, you know, that's what curiosity has done for me. And it helped me like probably not go into a deep depression, quite honestly. So tell me an accomplishment that you're most proud of. Probably legitimizing the business of wellness and also um, championing love as a business strategy. I mean, that's really, those are two big things that I would say are big accomplishments. Um, the other big accomplishment I would say are the number of stamps in my passport, which I feel really lucky to have gotten before the pandemic because I got to see you know, over 75 countries and, and get to see lots of different cultures. And it's just helped me to be sort of the global citizen that I hold myself to um, in terms of tolerance and curiosity, embracing other people's religious traditions, cultural traditions, any of those things. Um, so those are things that I'm really proud of. Awesome. And um, what does success mean to you ultimately? To be loved and feel loved, you know, I really, that really to, to me is to, as it is about loving what I do, loving the people that I'm with and giving that love freely. I mean, that's really what success means to me. If I can find a way to do that, love the work that I do and the people that I work with and the people that I live with and spend my time with, like that's success. You're the first person who's answered the question that way. And I really love that. <laughs> oh, cool. All right. So we're going to move into our rapid fire questions. So just quick answers. So tell me, Mia, what keeps you up at night? Um, not delivering on my word or promises. If you could completely switch careers, what would you do? I would own a healthy, fast, casual restaurant and run it. What is your biggest strength, your superpower? I would say I'm a great connector of people and places and things. Okay. And what is your greatest weakness? Probably how I treat myself sometimes like that, this, the voice in my head, like the mean angel on the shoulder. It's probably, I'm not always as nice to myself as I need to be. And if you could have one skill set that you don't have right now, what would it be? Oh, I would like, I would like numbers and finance to be like an innate language for me. Me too. <laughs> I so envy people that see the world in numbers because it takes a lot of work for me to do that. Yeah. And I can do it and I'm good at it when I want to be, but it is like a foreign language to me. I agree. And the secret to that for me has been to hire a really great CFO. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> yep. What do you think the biggest challenge facing women today is? I would say it's you can do it all, but often not all at once. Love that. Um, if you were to go back and give your younger self one key piece of advice, what would it be? Have more fun. Gosh, I really relate to all your answers. Where do you see yourself going next? You know, I have to tell you, Valerie, I don't. And I'll tell you why. I think in my 20s and 30s, I was very caught up, and this is related to the last question, about where I thought I should be or could be, but not where I was. And now I'm just very focused on being the river and not the rock. And I'm just flowing. I don't know what's next. I just hope to embrace it. I love that. Great answer. And what is um, some actionable advice for those listening who may be interested in, in your industry of how to kind of break through or get into it? A lot of people ask, you know, do you have to have, have you had to have a work in the wellness industry in some capacity? And it's so broad, right? So that's one avenue in. But another avenue is 
find something to be really good at, like from a functional standpoint, whether it's marketing, communications, you know, digital media, HR, if you have some functional expertise, you can take that anywhere. And I think that's a great way to break into an industry is like showing up with something to offer on day one. Love that. All right. And the next question is an aspirational one. If money was no object, what is the best spa in the world? Oh my God. Oh, oh, oh that's a curveball, Valerie. <laughs> Ooh, or um, it could be in the United States. What's just, no, no, no. just a, what's a spa that is I'm just going around. No, no, I'm going abroad. You asked okay, that. Okay. Okay. I'm going abroad. Um, I'm going to have to say Indonesia, there is a place called the Como Shambhala estate, which I'll have to send you. That's just amazing. And then there's Karana spa that also happens to be in Bali as well. And they both were out of this world. Um, if you want something closer to home, one of the places that I love and touched my soul is a place called Rancho La Puerta, which is in Baja, um, Mexico. I mean, close to you in Southern California, drive over the border girl and go. It's just really a, a great place to connect with people. The food's wonderful. The programming's wonderful, but there's a soulfulness there and approachability that I haven't really felt anywhere else. Awesome. Well, I think you've answered all of my questions today and I really appreciate you being here and talking about this incredible industry of wellness. Um, and just thank you. Thank you for sharing a little bit about what you do and how you got here. Thanks. And thanks for providing a platform for people like me to do this. It's, I think the work of She Dynasty is really important and um, I love the way you do it. So thank you. You're welcome.